Craig Hoffman. Free agency bonanza! Yes, yes indeed. <clears throat> okay, now, voice, regular, Hoffman Show. HoffmanShow.com, what's up, what's happening? And this is a free agency recap. Uh, I did some instant analysis, volume one, volume two on the first two rounds of free agency. Volume three is coming at you in audio form. Over the next uh, 45 minutes to an hour or so, going to discuss all of the things that have happened in free agency. We'll have a deep dive into the Mavericks coming up and why they are so good at scrambling and recovering and why that's just not good enough coming up in a little bit. Uh, crazy or not crazy, breaking down some of the deals that happened, whether or not they're just a, a facts of the new market or whether or not, no, that was a pretty stupid amount of money you gave that very tall human being who's good at playing basketball. But let's start with the super tall human being who's super good at basketball, and that is, of course, Kevin Durant going to the Golden State Warriors. Uh, my cousin Jordan texted me yesterday, and he just goes, what was your initial reaction? One word, shocked. I am completely shocked that he left Oklahoma City. Um... I'm not mad at him for leaving Oklahoma City. But I am shocked that he left Oklahoma City. Not because he didn't better his situation. Not because he is a human being with free will that did what he wanted despite the fact that it wasn't easy. And that is commendable in many ways. He had leverage. He had power. He has freedom. And he bettered himself. You cannot argue that. But he built Oklahoma City more than any other person in the last decade. And when I say built Oklahoma City, I'm not talking about the thunder. I'm talking about the city of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. There is no single person more responsible for the growth and development of that city than Kevin Durant. I read to you from the book of Lee. Lee Jenkins. Sports Illustrated. It's just supremely talented. He's as good at writing about basketball players. As Kevin Durant is at playing basketball. Um, May 24th edition of Sports Illustrated. It's how his feature on Kevin Durant starts. Through the living room window of his spacious brownstone in downtown Oklahoma City, Kevin Durant can see the Devon Energy Center, stretching 50 stories into the red sky. Whether Durant is padding around his house or pulling out his garage, the soaring glass tower unfailingly catches his eye, transporting him to the summer in 2008 when he arrived in his new home and surveyed the flat landscape. Quote, I think of myself as a small town kid, Durant says. I like the small town vibe, but it was a ghost town. The downtown wasn't really a downtown. I don't remember a single tall building. Now I look at that building and it's a beacon, reminding me what we came from. If that paragraph alone doesn't render you shocked that he would leave that place, just wait till you keep reading this piece from Lee Jenkins. If I was doing radio in Oklahoma City today, I'd be reading this piece crying, holding anyone's hand that wanted to come in studio with me and singing Kumbaya trying to get through the pain of losing this guy who I know just changed the fortune of the franchise forever. Later in the piece, quote, but it's not just that, Durant continues. I drive through downtown, through Midtown, through the Asian District and see so many different businesses, so many different people. It's a big, diverse city that's grown with the team. The impact of sports franchises on urban renewal is often overstated. But in Oklahoma City, it's obvious. New quote, new guy. The Thunder has given us a worldwide brand we've never had before, says the mayor, Mick Cornett, citing the area's strong corporate recruitment and staggering influx of millennials. Continuing his quote, The exposure has been immeasurable. You tell somebody in another country you're from Oklahoma City, and they say, Kevin Durant. Internationally known is Kevin Durant, and associated internationally with Oklahoma City. And you thought it couldn't get worse, but wait. Quote from Durant, Where I grew up, we were 30 minutes outside of Washington, D.C., but there was never anything new. In Oklahoma City, everything is new. We've got a new Aloft hotel up the street. There's a new arcade, Bricopolis, I want to try. 
Behind my house, all these new townhomes are going in, and along the highway out to our facility, they tore down the old car wash and are putting up more new condos. I know that's not a championship, but the championships, the records, the who's the best player, there will always be new champions and new records and new players. What we're talking about, these are jobs. These are lives. These are things that will matter for 40 years, and that is very cool to me. I remember reading that on May 24th and going, there is no way in hell Kevin Durant is leaving. Of course, what we didn't know on May 24th was how the rest of his season would play out. The 3-1 lead squandered as Klay Thompson had an out-of-body experience in the final five minutes of Game 6. A Game 6 that Bob Myers, the Golden State Warriors GM, told ESPN Zach Lowe, he went back and watched immediately when it finished because he didn't know what the hell happened, and he still doesn't know what the hell happened. He doesn't know how they won that game, but damn it, they did, and they went to the NBA Finals. Of course, the Warriors lost in the NBA Finals, and that probably made them really want to get to Durant, and it probably makes it a touch easier for Durant to join them. He's not joining the champion. He's now joining the former champions and feels like he's the piece that can get them there again. It's a little bit easier narrative to sell. We didn't know all that on May 24th, but when Lee Jenkins put out that piece, I thought there is no way Kevin Durant is leaving that. But as he said in his Players' Tribune piece, he wants to get out of his comfort zone. He's challenging himself. And again, for that, I think it's commendable. He knows that he could stay in Oklahoma City for the rest of his career, and he would be a legend there. But frankly, he already is. Oklahoma City will be a part of him forever. I imagine he'll still continue to give back to that community. And there is a large part of that community. Certainly it is a silent majority this morning, the day after, um, and was silent yesterday, instead filled in by the morons with automatic weapons who decided to literally just go gun range on his jersey. Um, The people that that burn jerseys in in fire pits and... um, the bar owner who left his jersey at on Durant's doorstep and then put a for sale by coward sign in his front yard. Those are the idiots that get the attention. Certainly most of that city realizes how lucky they were to have a superstar of that caliber. And it goes to a greater point in sports where we honor loyalty, and I get it, on a lot of levels. Um... You know, if a franchise treats you well, which the Thunder could not have treated Kevin Durant better, and he knows it, he's said it, he's admitted it, there's nothing the Thunder could have done, which in a way helps you sleep at night, but simultaneously makes it all the more frustrating. You can't beat yourself up, but you just, you're left grasping for air, going, "I, I got nothing, there's nothing we could have done. It makes you feel hopeless if you're Sam Presti, the general manager of the Thunder, and his organization today. But we begrudge players for not being loyal to a place they are assigned. Kevin Durant didn't pick Oklahoma City. Hell, Oklahoma City didn't even pick Durant. Seattle did. And then Seattle moved to Oklahoma City. There are certainly players. Eli Manning forced his way out of San Diego to New York. Um, Carmelo Anthony forced his way out of Denver to New York. But the franchises technically don't have to oblige those requests. The players could sit out, but they're not going to, especially in Anthony's case. What was he going to do? Sit out the second half of the season for the Nuggets? No. The Knicks were stupid and traded for him. More on that later in the podcast and what the Lakers shouldn't do about Russell Westbrook. The point is... Athletes come out in a draft system and they don't get to pick where they go. These are some of the most talented people in the world respective to their specific skills. They're in the 1%, they're the top 1% of the top 1%. And yet they are assigned. It's not a technology company where you get to pick where you want to go. It's not a whatever, almost any other line of work where you get to pick the top. Nope, you get assigned. 
And then if someone wants to leave, that's seen as some act of cowardice. Doesn't make any sense to me. What does make sense on some level of anger is where he went. I'll at least understand the argument that, man, you're going to go to the team that beat you. But I'd ask you this, if you fall into that camp. Why the hell wouldn't you want to play for the Golden State Warriors? Have you seen that team play basketball? It's the most fun team we've ever seen. Certainly that I've ever seen. I don't want to speak for everyone, because I can't speak for everyone. Um, And I'm sure that watching the, and I know that watching the 80s Lakers was a blast and watching the 80s Celtics was a blast um, because I've gone back on NBA TV and watched classic games and they were super fun. But man, the Warriors to me are more fun. And if you're Kevin Durant and you have the option of grinding it out with Russell Westbrook in Oklahoma City with the, the talent that's there. And it's not even necessarily about the talent that's there. It's about the. It's not like, oh, this proves that he didn't want to play with Russell Westbrook. No, he proves that he wants to play with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green, and Andre Iguodala, and Sean Livingston more. And why wouldn't you? If you're a basketball player and you could pick any team on earth to go play with for funsies, you'd pick the Golden State Warriors. And so Kevin Durant had his choice of any basketball team in the world, and he chose the Golden State Warriors. I will not begrudge him for that at all. I don't care that they just beat him. I don't care that they are ready-made now to possibly become a dynasty because I've watched sports and I know it's not that easy and they know it's not that easy. But man, could they have a lot of fun on the way? Yeah. And that at the end of the day is why Kevin Durant left. He knows he can. it gives him the absolute best shot to win a championship. And he knows that he's going to have a heck of a lot of fun doing it. So we did it. It's so funny because these guys are competitors and we want them to be super competitive, but we're okay when players play and managers manage. Like if they had engineered a trade somehow for this to happen and it wasn't at all pushed by Durant, We'd be okay with it if Bob Myers and Sam Presti had worked it out because they're just the general managers doing their jobs. When the players play, like we're okay with whatever they do because they're just doing their job. But the minute a player wants to cross into helping form a team, people say it's a shortcut. Look, man, it's simple. Kevin Durant's a competitor. He wants to win. This is legal and in absolutely no way taking advantage of the rules in some unsavory way. This isn't some loophole he exploited. So why should he pass on being competitive because some people don't like it? The answer is he shouldn't. So he didn't. And so he went to the Warriors. Craig Hoffman. So what about the basketball? For the Warriors and for the Thunder, let's dive into both of those now. Uh, The notion that Kevin Durant is joining a 73-win team is false. Joining the 73-win franchise, not quite the 73-win team. So the 82-0, and 0, can they win 73 again? Can they win 75? Whatever. I, t- no, no, no are the answers to all of that. Because for as great as the Warriors are going to be, without question, barring catastrophic multiple injuries at this point, they could lose Steph or KD and still be amazing. They're that good at the top. The one thing they did sacrifice to make this move for Kevin Durant was their depth. And their depth is what separated them from everyone else. Now, their top-end talent will separate them from everyone else. And they still have a depth of top-end talent that has not been seen in the NBA in a long time. I mean, look, you've had big threes. You've had multiple Hall of Famers on the court together, obviously, in Miami. Um, and other places going back through the annals of NBA history, to have four all-NBA players is insane. And then Andre Iguodala and Sean Livingston. Like, their top six is as good as a, of a top six as possibly we've ever seen. But 7 through 10 used to be the caliber of, like, 4 through 7, 4 through 6, even some, you know, three through six 
on other teams. They just had starters, caliber players coming off the bench, and they still will in Livingston and Iguodala. They add Zaza Pachulia as their starting center, who is an absolute steal. Considering some of the deals that big men got, Jan Mahimi, Timothy Mozgov, all that, to get Zaza on a, two, a one-year $2.9 million for a guy who damn near made the all-star team last year in Dallas, that's, I mean, it's not getting Durant, but that might have been the second biggest coup yesterday. Amazing job by the Warriors front office on that one. So, really, their top seven is is exceptional. Um, with those five, the, the four all-NBA players, Draymond, Green, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Zaza Pachulia, then at the five, and then Iguodala and Livingston. But they lose Andrew Bogut. They lose Harrison Barnes. Okay, so you replace them with two players who are comparable and much better. Pachulia, Bogut, comparable. Durant over Barnes, mucho better. But you also lose Barbosa. You also lose James Michael McAdoo, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but he's a guy who's been in the system for multiple years and was getting better, and they trusted to play some minutes. They lose Ian Clark, another guy. Again, been in the system. They trust to play some minutes. They lose Festus Azili, who they didn't trust a ton, but played quite a bit of minutes and was a guy they obviously trusted enough to go back to in the NBA Finals, which is a decision from Steve Kerr in Game 7 that I still don't really understand. But they lose all of those pieces and the continuity that allowed them to win 73 games. They won 73 games not just because of their top-end talent being great, Steph Clay Draymond. They they won 73 games because on any given night, they had eight different guys who could help win them a ball game. They won 73 games because there was no figuring-out process to start last season. They had the best start in NBA history. So there wasn't the coming together as a team aspect that they will have to figure out this year. So while they are a better basketball team, Kevin Durant is not joining the 73-win Warriors. That is a false narrative. And it's going to be interesting to watch them figure it out. Steve Kerr is going to have to figure out the rotations. How much do you split up that core four? When do you play the death lineup and how much? And by the way, we're not calling it the death lineup anymore. I am on a movement. I hasn't really gotten a lot of steam yet other than everyone I tell goes, man, I really like that. But let's work on it. If the death lineup was Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Andre Iguodala, Harrison Barnes, and Draymond Green, then the Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Andre Iguodala, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, God, that is dumb to say out loud. That lineup together, that's not a death lineup. That's the apocalypse lineup. How much does it play together? That's something Steve Kerr is going to figure out. And then in the playoffs, is it something he starts? Certainly something he'll use to close. By the way, if they want to play that lineup uh, and substitute Sean Livingston in with for Steph Curry, it's just called arms. Not the arms lineup. It's just arms. Because... Clay is the shortest guy in that lineup, I think. At like 6'5, 6'6. It's dumb long. Nightmare defensively. Good luck with that. But Kerr's got to figure it out. And what Steve Kerr can do to kind of manage some of the lack of depth is play two at a time. And obviously, Livingston and, and Iguodala are terrific players as well. So, you know. With Kavon Looney and McCaw. Looney, the rookie from last year. McCaw, one of the guys they just drafted. Damian Jones, another guy they just drafted. When those guys are on the floor, they can still have two of Durant, Clay, Green, Curry on the floor with them. So they can pretty much always have at least two of those guys on the floor. But something Steve Kerr did spectacularly and has done spectacularly over the last two seasons of them being overall the best team in basketball 
is during the regular season, leave all bench lineups on the floor to make them play and make them get experience. It's something a lot of coaches are scared to do, but it's a part of talent development that's really important. I think they're going to, look, they're going to win 60 plus games. They might walk into 65. In the playoffs, they got better. But during the regular season, there's going to be nights where they go, eh. And their, their eye is on the bigger picture. Their eye is on being as good as they can be and is having as many guys ready and as being for that core four or core six or whatever you want to talk about, being as comfortable playing with each other as possible. Those are the goals of the Warriors in the regular season so that when they get to the playoffs, there is no more learning. They are ready to go. It's why the regular season is important, despite the fact that a lot of people are just going to go, oh, we should just crown Golden State for the next three years now. Look, there's a reason they play the games. They've got to learn how to play together. There's, all right, There will be reaction to this next offseason around the league. Teams then coming at them. Will they succeed? I don't know. It's kind of hard to put together a better group of talent than what they just put together. Because the one thing they did do while sacrificing their depth was fix the one hole they had. And this hole was bigger than it should have been during the finals because Curry was hurt. But when it comes time to just clear out and get a basket, the Warriors would run their offense, which is awesome. I wish more teams did that. But sometimes simpler is better. And if you just need to get a bucket, Steph in isolation isn't the best way to get his buckets. Klay Thompson in isolation is not the best way to get his buckets. Kevin Durant in isolation may not be the best way to get his buckets, but it's one hell of an option. Dump it down to him in the mid post, dump it down to him on the block, let him go to work one-on-one. And instead of now having four defenders looking at him because he's surrounded by four other guys who can't shoot, he's now going to have a ton of space because Curry and Thompson and Green and Iguodala are spacing the floor. And if Andre Iguodala is the worst shooter on the floor, that's not a great option for the defense. That's what they did. That's what they sacrificed. That's where they're at. As for the Thunder, they need to trade Russell Westbrook. And the likelihood is Sam Presti knows it. Presti's always been a guy to get out in front. You look at the James Harden trade, they made it before they had to. So a lot of eyes, quite frankly, I think including mine, that was a mistake, but at least I understand what he was doing. You maximize the value of James Harden by trading him a year early. And they traded him to a place that he wanted to stay, so he signed the extension because they weren't willing to sign Harden for the money he wanted in Oklahoma City. And you got more value. And look, in hindsight, that trade looks a hell of a lot better than we thought. Did they, Unless you you know think they sacrificed a title in 2013. I don't think they did. I think the Heat would have won it again anyway. But they get Steven Adams out of that deal. And they got some other flexibility that helped them put together really competitive teams. They didn't wind up winning, but they gave themselves a heck of a shot. They need now to replace Kevin Durant, and they're going to need to probably replace Westbrook because he's probably not staying without Durant after this season. They've got to get superstars. Not superstar, superstars. So yeah, if I'm Sam Presti this morning, I'm on the phone with Danny Ainge in Boston seeing if I can pry the 2018 Brooklyn pick, which is likely to be the best shot at winning the the lottery next year. So in all likelihood, it will be a top three pick, if not the number one pick, plus Boston's pick and some other stuff to try to reload that way. I'm on the phone with the Lakers. Will they give up Brandon Ingram, the number two pick from this year's draft, who many think will be a star? And their pick next year. I'm actually more inclined to make that deal at the trade deadline after the Lakers have been terrible for a season. That way their pick is worse. The point is, you know, you get on the phone with Minnesota and see if you can get Andrew Wiggins and Chris Dunn. Um, and then see if, you know, Russell Westbrook wants to pair, pair with Carl Anthony Towns. The problem for Sam Presti is that Russell Westbrook is in control of all of this. If he's not willing to give an okay and sign an extension, 
or at least insinuate that he will sign in the offseason wherever he's traded, his value is significantly lower. So trying to get the bounty that they want for Russell Westbrook is going to be difficult. Because if you're the Lakers, what you don't want to be is the Knicks. The Knicks were going to sign Carmelo Anthony in the offseason of 2010. I think it was 2010. Maybe it was 2011. Whenever it was. When he got traded from the Nuggets to the Knicks. If the Knicks had just waited till the offseason and let his contract expire, they could have signed him no problem. Instead, they trade every asset they have to the Nuggets and Melo comes to a bare cupboard. And they had one good season where they won one playoff series. Other than that, have largely been terrible. And in their midst of rebuilding. Is that what Melo wanted when he came to New York? No. But they forced the issue, both the Knicks and Carmelo, instead of going, look, man, we'll sign you this offseason, and you can play with good players like Danilo Gallinari and Wilson Chandler, and we'll have draft picks, and we can continue to, to grow this program together and maybe accomplish something. If you're the Lakers, don't give up Brandon Ingram. You want to give up D'Angelo Russell, point guard for point guard? Fine. And if it costs you a pick, I think that's worth it. But to give up the guys that Westbrook would want to play with, that you don't do. At least not all at once. Because the other thing for Westbrook is, is he want to go to a Lakers team that isn't ready to win yet? Are they too young? So if you can flip Ingram for another superstar and flip Russ, D'Angelo Russell and the pick for Russell Westbrook, now you're talking. Now that's somewhere where Russell Westbrook is going to be inclined to sign. But you've got to have that assurance. And that's why, despite the fact that the Thunder need to trade Russell Westbrook, and that just about any team in the NBA would want Russell Westbrook, I don't think it's going to be that easy to make a deal. Because Sam Presti's not going to trade him for less than he's worth. And he's not going to... And his value is not what you would think it is because Westbrook is on an expiring contract and his value is only as high as his willingness to sign wherever he is traded to. Craig Hoffman. So that's where we're going. But now let's take a step back and rewind. How did we get here? And I'm not just talking about specific to Durant. We can we can broaden this out to all of the insane money deals that were signed over the weekend that really aren't that insane if you understand how we got here. But um, I think ra- like I think it's okay to acknowledge that these deals are insane, but also not be shocked by them. Like we can go, it's stupid that player X is making XX million of dollars, but not be shocked that it happened. Because what has happened here is a complete systematic failure of the NBA's economy. It is not how it is designed. And there is fault both with the NBA and the NBA Players Association. Adam Silver described that the new collective bargaining agreement signed after the lockout in 2011 was designed so that stars would be spread out. Stars would be in multiple markets. And now you've got the greatest collection of star power arguably the NBA has ever seen for all NBA players all on the same team with the last three MVPs all on the same team. Curry, back-to-back, Durant before that. So how did that happen? Well, the system worked as it was designed, kind of, but it made it impossible for teams to keep themselves together. And then, combined with the quirk of the new TV money, it made this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the Warriors to get everybody together. So let's let's expand on that. Back in 2011, they signed this new CBA. The salary cap gets shrunk, proportionally speaking, um, from and, and their shorter contracts, and it makes it harder for teams to keep everybody together. 
As a result, the Oklahoma City Thunder determined that Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant are their priorities, rightly decide, and that means they need to trade James Harden when Harden won't agree to a less-than-max contract, or at least they, they he was willing to agree for something a little less than max, but not, not to the level that Oklahoma City deemed necessary for him to be kept around, and then also Serge Ibaka. And if you want to argue Harden-Ibaka, fine. Um, the Thunder made the Western Conference Finals every year that Durant or Westbrook wasn't hurt. So you can argue that till you're blue in the face. I obviously take Harden over Ibaka, but let's not pretend like they've, they've suffered immensely because of that decision. They trade James Harden. They wind up getting... Uh, in hindsight, a pretty good return. They, they're able to flip into, you know, Steven Adams and they've been able to through a multitude of trades to, to kind of build out the roster in a way that has turned into a pretty good roster, obviously, uh, nearly making the NBA finals last year and would have been in great shape to do so again, had Kevin Durant come back. So they're forced to trade Harden. They never are able to keep the four that they had together of Ibaka, Harden, Durant, Westbrook together and make another run at the NBA Finals after they make it when they're 23 and 22 years old. That sours Durant. Durant eventually winds up leaving. That is the fault of the NBA. Makes it really hard to keep everybody together, keep everybody happy. Pay everybody what they're market value is then you've got the horrific mistake of the NBA PA we all knew this TV money was coming and there were two options let it come when it comes or anticipate and smooth it so that everybody doesn't get paid in this summer and next summer in two massive dumps of money into the BRI BRI is basketball related income there is a 50-50 split of that based off of the last CBA negotiations, the ones that ended the lockout in 2011. And it's it's all formulaic. So there's more money being pumped in. $24 billion of ESPN and Turner money go into this pot. It's split 50-50. The 50 that is the player's percentage divided by 30, there's your salary cap. That meant that this summer... Everyone got 20 extra million dollars of salary cap space. If they had smoothed it over the last three years and given every given everyone, you know, six and a half million, whatever, 6.6 million at a time, then there isn't an extra salary cap spot for the Warriors to sign Kevin Durant. And the distribution is more even of money. You wouldn't have Timothy Mozgov signing for four years, 64 million, because that money wouldn't be available because, and also, the Lakers wouldn't feel the need to spend $64 million on a marginal player to reach the salary floor. Every team has to spend 90% of the salary cap. So teams are handing out money because they can. It doesn't really hurt them. So it's like, ah, we need to get an extra couple million to get this deal done? Fine. Why did the NBA PA reject that? Because the NBA offered to do it. It was a negotiation in their mind. They didn't care what was actually best for the majority of their players, which would have been a smoothing. So that more players get more money as opposed to two classes of free agents making bank. This year, next year. The cap might even drop in three years. Not much. It'll still be over $100 million. It'll still be more than what it is now. But there's projections that say it's going to go $100 million, $110 million, and maybe drop back down to one hundred and seven. And then drop again. It might even get back down to $100 million in four or five years. Depends on how the new money comes in. Probably won't. You've got jersey patch sales and other streams of income that should be able to continue to grow that pot of money. And so, does it eventually even out? Yes. But if you're a player who's a free agent last summer, you're missing out. You're like, you could get your money in three years, but you're missing out on the money now. And it was as simple as the NBA's offer it offering it, we're mad at them, and we're saying no. That's why the NBA PA did it. It makes zero sense. They did not serve the vast majority of their constituency. It's a failing by NBA PA leadership. And the result is you have this Warrior Super Team. 
But what's really interesting is how we got here in general. And this is something that hasn't been talked about as much, and it's something later in this week, I think we're going to be able to catch up with Howard Beck again, Bleacher Report. I might reach out to Arnovitz too, Kevin Arnovitz, ESPN.com. Guys that have covered this league for a long time, and I want to ask them their opinion. But how did we get here in general? Because when Mike Conley signed five years, $153 million, or agreed to sign, (laughs) there's outrage from the dumb corners of the internet going, how does a guy who's never made an all-star team sign the richest deal in NBA history? Outrage! Never made an all-star team. Biggest contract ever. Roar! And I'm going, you guys just don't get how this works. You don't understand how any of this works. And then I thought to myself, do I understand how any of this works? Because really, how? what sense does that make? Look, part of it is because guys like LeBron and Durant now are signing two-year deals. So if they had signed max deals, they would have had bigger contracts. Um, Carmelo Anthony, who signed a five-year max, signed before the influx of cap money. Like, I understand how this happened. But how is Mike Conley a max player? How is it that percentage of the cap-wise he is deemed worth the same as LeBron James. That doesn't make any sense in the world. Well, there's multiple things that contribute to this, obviously starting with the fact that there is a maximum salary. There is a cap on the wealth that the top players can make from basketball. But if LeBron James is worth the max... Doesn't it make logical sense that no owner would go, Mike Conley is not worth that. We're not signing him to that. Yes, but that's not how owners work. And so what's happened gradually over the past couple of years, as the cap has expanded and expanded and expanded, and there has been enough room under it for owners to sign players and for agents to push and say, we're not signing for that. Give us more. Give us more. This other team, team A is, or team B is going to give us more team A. And team A is like, damn it. All right, we'll give you that much. And they go back to team B and team B is like, no, we'll pay you more. And that's how negotiation works. You use your leverage. You can go up, go up, go up until you hit the max. And that's the hard cap. You can't get more than that. And so the line of who gets a max has gone down and down and down the list of players. So now instead of the top five players just getting a max, The top 25 players are getting the max. But that's just the market, and that's the thing. You look at a player like Chandler Parsons, who's a great example of a guy who should, based on his history and what his ceiling as a player is, have no business getting the same percentage of the cap as LeBron James. Now, we'll ignore for a second the fact that Parsons is actually making less, and the the technicality there, I'll just explain real quickly. Parsons has been in the league less time and LeBron has been over been in the league over 10 years so he's eligible for a higher percentage of max at 35% than the I believe 30% that Parsons is able to get I believe he's going into his sixth year so he gets between the six and nine so it's below six you get 25% between six and nine years of experience you get 30% 10 years plus you get 35% But the point is, Chandler Parsons and LeBron James are both making max. And that sentence, when said out loud, is stupid. But if Memphis and Portland are both offering it to him, clearly that's his market value. And that's, in the end, what this is all about. The market. It's insane how we got here. Owners cannot help themselves. It's why, in those 2011 CBA negotiations, they wanted the the length of contract to go down. Look, we know we're not going to be able to help ourselves from signing some marginal player to a seven-year max contract. So let's make sure it's only four or five. That way it doesn't hinder a franchise like the Knicks did for a decade. When we make mistakes, we want to be able to fix them faster. We don't want them to be as punitive. That is essentially why shorter-length contracts are now the maximum allowed. 
but they can't help themselves from the money side of it. To me, it's that simple. The market got out of control because the people who are giving away the money can't control themselves. So Mike Conley's a max player and has the richest contract in NBA history. Until next year, when Kevin Durant and LeBron James sign five-year contracts as 10-plus-year players in the league worth $200 bajillion. Call it a wrap. Call it a wrap today with the team that I used to cover day in, day out, the Dallas Mavericks, and their free agency off-season summer dealings, which are very similar to their previous summer's free agency off-season dealings. Miss out on the guys they want? Recover pretty nicely. Make a few moves that make you go, all right, they're going to put a competitive team on the floor. A team that has no chance of winning a championship. That's kind of been it since 2011. They win the championship in 2011. They decide to break up the team, which at the time was a very controversial decision, but one that I understood and still understand. How they've acted since then is what is incredibly frustrating. You know, it's kind of funny. It's one of those things where I'm trying to think of a like a great analogy, but think of something that you're really good at, but you're only good at it because you've had to do it a lot. And so it's it's you know you're you're great at you're great at putting out fires because it's you're a terrible cook, right? Like you've got a lot of experience. You don't panic when your your food catches on fire, and you're never gonna burn down the house. But like, quit burning your food. That's what the Mavericks have done. They've gotten great at, man, Seth Curry, two years, six million? It's a freaking awesome deal. You know, recovering nicely, Harrison Barnes, I like that signing. I think he's either going to be good or another team will take him, even at max. He's still only 24 years old. A lot of teams believe he can be helpful. Obviously, he was helpful along the Warriors' 73-win season and their title last year despite his 2-for-22 on wide-open looks performance in the last two games of the NBA Finals this year. Um, Andrew Bogut, nice piece to add. Like They're going to be fine. Rick Carlisle is going to make them competitive. They're going to be a pain in the ass to play. But they're not going anywhere. And when you break up a title team, the point is we're trying to build another one. And that's where Mavs fans have every right to be incredibly frustrated. ESPN's Zach Lowe really chronicled it well in his column last Friday. And he said, you can't control free agents' choice, especially when incumbent teams cannot bid you. But it wasn't nuts to think some big name would take the Mavs' money, particularly given Mark Cuban's cozy relationship with power agent Dan Fagan. Dwight Howard was coming up. Chris Paul was coming up. Carmelo Anthony was coming up. LeBron was coming up, but, we're, you know, probably not going to Dallas. But there were plenty of free agent options. The one guy they wind up landing is Chandler Parsons, and they let him go. The DeAndre Jordan thing is still going to be one of the great what-ifs. It's certainly the greatest, or the second greatest what-if in Mavericks history, outside of what if they have valued Steve Nash a little bit more. But, you look at how they mishandled their own assets. And I guess that's kind of ironic considering a lot of people think it was a mistake to break up the 2011 team. The Mavs have basically been the anti-Thunder. The Thunder have arguably traded their assets too early, but the goal is we're not giving up an asset for nothing. Durant being the exception because they thought, and they did, have a great chance to re-sign him. They weren't going to trade away Kevin Durant because it would have cost them a chance at a title this year if they traded him at, say, the trade deadline. And they weren't willing to do that, and they thought they could bring him back, and they had a great chance, and they probably almost did, but in the end, he decides to sign with Golden State. The Mavericks have done the exact opposite. It's like, get everyone out of here. We're going to make a play at someone else's free aging. And I think the criticism of they never land the big fish isn't fair because what franchise is good at landing the big fish? The Heat have done it once with LeBron. The Warriors have now done it once with Durant. The Lakers have a history of doing it back before the internet 
basically, where stars didn't really care as much about the market. Like, playing for the Lakers was a much more prestigious thing. So they get Shaq in 1996. Like, Jerry West is the one guy who can go like, yep, I got Durant in 2016, I got Shaq in 96. Um, You know, so there's been player, you know, the Lakers kind of have a little bit of a history of it, but certainly not anymore. The point is, no franchise is good at landing other teams' free agents because it doesn't happen. Players don't change, but when they do, the Mavericks were coming off a title and had a model franchise and a reputation for taking care of players that made them seem like a logical destination for a player should he move. They struck out. But the problem is the Mavs never had a, like, plan B never really existed. They're awesome at plan C, D, and E, but their execution of plan A and, and, and how that molded into plan B was poor. Back to Lowe's article. They traded down in drafts to save money, traded out of them and whiffed on most of the picks they did make. Donnie Nelson, the team's GM, begged Cuban, Mark Cuban, the owner, to draft Giannis Adetokounmpo at number 13 in 2013, but the Mavs instead traded down five spots to open up a few hundred thousand bucks in extra cap space for Dwight Howard. They ended up drafting Shane Larkin at number 18 as part of a deal that sent away their first round pick from the year before. Fewer teams had cap room then, but the Mavs could have picked 13th and found other ways to dump money in a pinch. And that's the point. They proactively put themselves in position in ways that were unnecessary. You know, I realize how easy it is to get a hundred, couple hundred thousand dollars. It's real easy in the NBA to create that amount of room. If they needed to create a couple hundred thousand dollars to sign Dwight Howard, they could have done it. They could have traded some nothing player attached a draft pick and, and traded into salary cap space, much like they just took on the $11 million of of Andrew Bogut into their cap space. The Warriors didn't preemptively go trade away Harrison Barnes and and Andrew Bogut. They said, if we get Durant, we'll make it work. The Cavs, if we get LeBron, we'll make it work. The Heat, if we get LeBron and Bosh, we'll make it work. They planned to go, actually the Heat are a little bit of a bad example. They kind of cleared the decks, but they didn't leave themselves stranded like the Mavs did, in unnecessary ways. The Mavs were completely unnecessary. Back to Lowe's article, one more parag- or two more paragraphs that help sum this up. Team building is hard, and it requires major luck somewhere along the way. Most picks below the lottery yield back of the rotation guys' total bus. Uh, for instance, he points to Roddy Bubois. Justin Anderson, the 21st pick last year, looks like a hoppy, versatile wing, perfect for the modern NBA. The hits don't have to be Kawhi Leonard or Draymond Green. One or two Drake... Crowders will do, which Lowe then points to the irony of that. The Mavs had the real Jay Crowder and included him, plus this year's pick, in their ill-fated gamble for Rajon Rondo. Boston got Brandon Wright in that deal, too. Crowder and Wright will earn $12 million combined next season, about 60% of Kent Bazemore's likely salary. Dallas was brilliant to snag Al Farouk Aminu on a minimum salary in 2014-15, but then let him walk to Portland to carve out max cap space for DeAndre Jordan. He then talks about Chandler Parsons, now the Mavs signed him, and then let him go for nothing. That's what the Mavs have done that makes no sense. That is where Mavs fans can get very upset at their management, both Donnie Nelson and how he's made decisions. But I think a lot of it does go back to Mark Cuban, a guy who is brilliantly smart. Go watch his interview with Malcolm Gladwell on Bill Simmons' show last week. If you have HBO, HBO Go, or steal your friend's password and log in, <laughs> go to HBO Go any given Wednesday and watch the discussions that Cuban had with Malcolm Gladwell, who's brilliantly smart as an author, and Bill Simmons, who's incredibly plugged in and is smart about the NBA. It's clear Cuban's smart. I've talked to Mark Cuban. He instantly makes you feel not inferior in terms of like heat's talking down to you and makes you feel inferior, but you just have this realization that he is much smarter than you. The second that you talk to him. But some of the moves he's made don't make sense. And that is exactly why the Mavericks are now again in this purgatory place where they've put together a team that their brilliant coach and aging superstar will be able to compete with on a night-to-night basis, but has no chance of getting back to where they want to be. 
You've got to manage your assets in the NBA. Not just make plays for other people's assets. You've got to manage your own and maximize them, whether that is keeping them on the court and having some level of continuity that allows you to build a core that other players want to come to or using them to bring in other assets from the outside. The Mavs have done neither. And in the process, they've also lost their sterling reputation. Because it used to be, look what, how they've taken care of Dirk. Look how they took care of Richard Jefferson. Look how they took care of Vince Carter. They had all of these players that had been around for a long time that were a part of the decision-making process and that felt like this inner circle and there was this sterling reputation that Mark Cuban was the best owner in sports and all the locker rooms and the private jets. and He changed the NBA in a lot of ways and, and what the expectation was. But now everybody does that. And Dirk is the last man standing. And all he's done is take pay cuts and less money to watch the Mavs fail around him and the Mavs management fail him in many ways. These are smart men with noble intentions. I'm not saying this was done of bumbling idiocy. They are not the Kings. They are not the Knicks. They are not incompetent. What they have been, though, is poor. And I think that's a fair criticism, a valid assessment. I don't necessarily agree with, disagree with the plan. What I disagree with is how they executed it. And I don't know whether they would admit to it, but I sure think that they would rather do some things different. You take risks, but they've got to be calculated. And they should be necessary risks. The Adetokounmpo play, unnecessary. Just take him. Sometimes it's that simple. Uh, back with more guests this week. As I said, we will get some NBA guys to recap what their thoughts are on this NBA free agency. Uh, maybe even some baseball talk this week as now the NBA kind of moves aside for a little bit. Summer League starts, which is fun to watch. If It's always the great like drip of the drug. The finals are great. Free agency is like, yes, give it to me intravenously. Shoot up with more basketball goodness. And then the Summer League is just the drip away that, that wanes you off until it kicks back up in the fall. But it's baseball season, I guess, from now until football season starts in like three weeks. America, where America's pastime has somehow become an afterthought in the eyes of a lot of sports fans. But uh, we'll, we'll see as we move towards the All-Star break and the trade deadline in baseball. We'll, we might have some baseball on the podcast as well. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Feedback, as always, welcome at Craig Hoffman on Twitter, C-R-A-I-G-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. You can also go to the contact me page at hoffmanshow.com. Subscribe to the podcast and the blog at hoffmanshow.com slash blog. I appreciate you for listening. Thank you and goodbye.